Hey Amir. Hey Pshemek, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm good. Is it Pshemek or P? What's your preference? <laughs> uh, well, it's Pshemiswav, but I don't want to be like a, you know, like a CNN talking head that puts a, an accent on certain names. Oh, yeah. Um, so you can call me P or Pshemek, whatever okay. is a... Uh, Whatever's good in the moment. Should I uh, pronounce my name with a uh, heavy Israeli accent? I've always dreamed of doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I just want to make a note to our listeners that, um, you know, if if the Israeli comes on too strong or the gay comes out of me too strong, to please write into the tip line, thoughtsonart at gmail.com and let us know. Yeah, and I'm uh, ESL, so apologies in advance for any uh, botched <laughs> pronunciations or Zionism shoved down your throat. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I too am ESL, believe it or not. Oh, true. I was born in Poland and grew up in Canada. Uh, and yeah, and we're brothers in arms being Polish as well. Half Polish, half Ukrainian, I- that is. That's true. And I think we're continuing a very important legacy of Polish broadcasters uh, following in the footsteps of Martha Stewart. Our queen. Our queen and Mika Brzezinski of Morning Joe. Absolutely. Although this podcast will not be as favorable to the arts as a Warren uh, town hall on MSNBC. (laughs) Just saying. Um, yeah, welcome to our new podcast, Thoughts on Art. Um, yeah, yeah, welcome. Yeah, that's thoughts with with an O. True. So, yeah, so look it up if you don't know what it means. And, um, I think this podcast is more of like the Wendy Williams experience, not on air with Ryan Seacrest. So, if that's something <laughs> you're looking for, um, go to those other art podcasts. <laughs> Which, uh, to be honest, I don't, I've never listened to. I don't know. I've tried a few, and I think that's why we started this podcast. Yeah. Because someone has to say it like you mean it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do enjoy the occasional uh, BBC, I think it's BBC Four or something that have interesting, like, arts podcasts. But otherwise, like, all the critical yeah. art podcasts are pretty. I, yeah. I also like Francesca Gavin on NTS Radio. I'm into her style, and mm-hmm. I love her, and she's really great. Um, but like these other formats of like a really square, you know, interview podcast, I'm not into that. Mm-hmm. So wait, Pshamik, where are you recording from? So this is a bi-coastal podcast. I'm uh, recording live from Genuf, Poland, which is mere kilometers away from the German border. Mm-hmm. And where are you, Amir? Uh, I'm recording from Sunset Park in Brooklyn. I will not fully disclose my exact uh, location. I will just say that if uh, Ghislaine Maxwell were to uh, do a prison break, she might um, end up here in my studio. So I'm actually not too far from her <laughs> current <laughs> residence. <laughs> are there any other artists near you that you know of? Uh, actually, I'm not sure. I'm in a building that's pretty big and it's mostly commercial units and industrial units. Uh, I'm sure the industry city studios are packed with artists, but uh, I've yet to have, uh, you know, made friends with them. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, I'm all alone in this house and actually I just got home. I was Uh on a very crazy trip. Um, 
I just helped uh, our pal of the pod, Ika, move to Austria. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was in Graz for two days. We stopped in Prague on the way, which was a COVID red zone. So I might oh, really? have COVID. Who knows? Oh, my God. <laughs> I do have a cough. It might be a COVID cough. Oh, it could God. be post-nasal drip. <laughs> um, and then drove through Slovakia, which I believe is closing its borders soon <laughs> due oh, to God. coronavirus. And then I went to this really wonderful uh, ceramics retreat slash residency mm-hmm. uh, in the mountains of Poland. And that was an amazing time. And we had a surprise trip to a thermal spring yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, this cutie in the steam room uh, suddenly sneezed. Oh my God. <laughs> Did they evacuate so, um, the dance floor? <laughs> <laughs> so, me and uh, Tomek, one of the artists who's really sweet, um, we were in there and immediately we're like, oh God, <laughs> we're going to get Corona. <laughs> And, um, yeah, or, you know, maybe I have altitude sickness. Um, I dodge so many dangers, like, on this trip. It's, like, constant rock slide and landslide warnings. Uh, There was also, uh, uh, like, a warning, actually not too far from here. It's, like, an hour away on the highway. It's, like, you are entering an African killer bee zone. Oh, my God. Is that the (laughs) thing they threaten will come to North America Alongside coronavirus? Or is that not the murder hornet or something? I think it's that. And um, I I probably drove through multiple uh, LGBT free zones. Uh, What did you do on the retreat? So the retreat, uh, it was a open air ceramics retreat. uh, And it was held by this foundation called Razem Pomoja. Uh, So it's a Polish foundation started by... Uh, this really wonderful guy, Bartek, and it's uh, connecting art in kind of different situations and allowing people to see things they normally wouldn't see. Uh, So uh, his wife is the artist Paulina Olowska, and uh, she has started this uh, project called Dom Twórczy Kadenówka. I know that's a mouthful. What What is that in English? It's uh, like a dom is house. Tvurci is like making something, like making artwork. So like a house of creation. And then Kadanufka is related is uh, referring to the name of the person who built the house in the 1930s. So it's this kind of typical Polish mountain architecture, like a like a wooden villa. And any uh, any uh, Venice biennial alumni? No, actually. And actually, everyone was making really nice things. There was no, like, lazy, sloppy ceramics. No goopy ceramics. No goopy ceramics as seen at a biennial. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Did you make work uh, that was about the body? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I... I made. How do you make ceramics and it... how, How could it not be about the body? What, it what is, is about a the vessel body. that is. Uh, yeah. I made vessels. My hands were all up in the vessels. Uh, my body <laughs> was interacting with it. Yeah. You became one with the vessel. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So but uh, you're back home now. 
Yes, I just got home uh, like two hours ago. <laughs> nice. Why don't we tell our listeners a little bit about our uh, special connection, our special relationship, just like Israel and America. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you mean um, doing laundry at the White House? <laughs> <laughs> I hope they don't revoke my citizenship after this podcast recording. Oh um, anyways, how do we uh, know each other? Uh, well, I feel like, God, how do we know each other? How far back do we go? I remember meeting you at Mubel Olfa in Berlin. Uh, True. uh, How many years ago was that? A haunt of Wolfgang Tillmans. Uh, (laughs) I think that was like 2011. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds right. And a friend of the pod, Brendan Fernandez, was visiting town and at a later date... Mm-hmm. Um, we went to visit your now husband Jordan mm-hmm. at work, and I like to take credit for having introduced you to. Yeah, it's actually true. So we, uh, you lived in Berlin until uh, how long ago? Uh, I moved to Poland two and a half years ago uh, okay. to this small village near the border. Um, I found like a old house where I have my studio. And uh, the rest is history. It sure is. Um, I, we're gonna get into Berlin a little uh, further down the road on this uh, on this episode. But uh, I'm trying to remember when did I move to Berlin? I think it was 2008. Uh, yeah, I think January 2008, and then I started school uh, Udaka like a year later or so, and I did my equivalent of uh, BFA and MFA there. And uh, I think it was like the last year of school that I met you and we had about a year's overlap or so. And then I moved to New York, uh, but I feel like our friendship only grew stronger. And we also share a very, uh, very special COVID sort of pre-COVID story, a special moment. That's true. Um, So Amir and I, we uh, did a residency in Tuscany in February. It was February 6th to March 6th. Uh, it was uh, through this foundation called the Dr. Eva Kahan Foundation. And when we were leaving to go to to fly to Florence, uh, it was already kind of COVID picking up. Like we arrived at the airport in Florence and there were people in Tyvek suits taking temperature and all that, which was definitely not happening in, happening in Berlin or in Paris. <laughs> Or a JFK. Yeah. Still. There was like no screening. And then uh, things just like progressively kept getting worse and worse out uh, in the world. And we weren't in northern Italy. Like we were kind of on the cusp of where northern Italy starts. But that's where they went into lockdown and all that. Um, We went to Rome for a few days, which was amazing. Went to the mm-hmm. Vatican, but I'm like shocked we didn't get coronavirus in the packed Vatican Museum. Yeah, and I even got tested for antibodies, and I uh, came out negative. Yeah, and then there was another artist, um, Mateusz Chorobski, and his partner Dobromiwa. I um, miss them. I miss them too. We had uh, such a nice time. <laughs> I know, and so many fun <laughs> treats and adventures. 
And we all, in our own ways, had these weird illnesses. <laughs> and turns out, like, no one actually had coronavirus, but of course we thought we did. And and I was pretty sick for, like, what, five days or so? Yeah, I took you, remember, you were like, uh, you need to take me to the hospital. And then I freaked yeah. out that I was going to oh go to an actual hospital and get coronavirus. But it was more of, like, a private clinic kind of thing. Um, yeah, and then... And then- and I even asked the doctor if she thinks, like, it was so, like, early days COVID that I asked her if she thinks I had a, a COVID. And she mocked me. And she was like, no, you don't got the COVID. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And then um, it's, like, Milan, Northern Italy, when it's lockdown, I blame Milan Fashion Week. Same. Um, <laughs> I'm just, you know, the thought of like, I remember us visiting a, a Vatican museums. It was just like so crowded in those hallways. That yeah, was insane. <laughs> and then I had a panic. We were, I don't know if you remember, we were on the metro, the subway. Um, and I picked my nose after touching the pole. Oh <laughs> and like had a freak out. I was like, oh God, I have it now. And um, I'm not ashamed to come out as a nose picker. And Same. <laughs> Yeah, I will the, say though, I, I just clear, clearly remember sitting outside the uh, the guest house where we were staying and listening listening to that daily episode with the uh, New York Times like health reporter or like epidemiologist or something like that, and he was uh, sort of predicting the whole like course of the epidemic with the lockdown like to a T, and it just sounded so surreal and absurd. God. Um, and then the residency ended. Uh, when when did it end? I want to say March 6th. It was March 6th, yeah. March 6th. I had like a few, like I had a grace period, a period of about like six days in New York and then everything just locked down, which is pretty insane. I will say though, this experience we shared together was just the nicest takeoff or sort of send off into this uh, kind of insane new reality. Yeah, it is because it was like the last uh, kind of semblance of normality. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when we were there, like things got weird. Like we went to the Prada outlet <laughs> oh, to true. Prada space. And remember there was like five Russians there and that was yeah. it. <laughs> like <laughs> some Asians. Yeah. It's like people were on red alert. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, tourism Someone suddenly died. Masks. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Disappointing though. Yeah. Yeah. The outlet was disappointing. It's like, if you're like a hot girl, with like a tight bod, then there's looks, but not for big bone boys like me. Unless you want to look like a space cadet. Yeah, it was like <laughs> a 70s like... space slut. That's all they had. Yeah. It was like racks of like uh, booty shorts. Like Barbarella. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, on another episode, we'll discuss the latest Prada collection um, shot in that yellow room. Oh uh, yeah, it's like, oh God, we'll talk about fashion another time. Um, but yeah, so... But, like, on the topic of coronavirus and COVID-19, um, hope we don't get demonetized like all those YouTubers were talking about it. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting time because, like, everything in the media and everything about, like, all these bailouts for galleries, uh, it's, like, giving this illusion that everything has gone to shit and everyone's mm-hmm. doing poorly, but... How have things been for you? Uh, on a personal level, well, New York uh, was pretty crazy in March and in April and even into May with the just extreme lockdown. 
I was kind of forced out of my uh, my personal, my private studio, which was in inside a uh, large sort of communal space that uh, shut down. Uh, I was given access to a temporary studio that was just big, bigger beyond my uh, my uh, wettest dreams, and I got to work there for a few months, uh, and then I finally moved studios to my current one in Sunset Park. And I hate to say it, but it's been not just enormously productive for me, as traumatic as the whole you know experience was here. Uh, living through it in New York, but it's just been very productive and a meaningful kind of moment of transition for me. So I'm, uh, I feel shitty for the less fortunate in terms of you know being able to thrive in this moment that could have completely you know destroyed some other people's creativity. Uh, but I've just been having a great time in that respect, at least. Well, I will say though, it kind of started in the residency. The residency was kind of a, a springboard opportunity just by way of shaking things up and like you know relocating and figuring uh things out in a different space uh and i was just able to take those tools i guess from the toolkit from the residency in italy and kind of implement them here um yeah that's about it i've just altogether been feeling pretty creative and, and productive what's it been like for you for me it's uh like we got back from the residency and you know, things change so fast, like within less than a week. And honestly, I just took it as like a good opportunity to have a break in life. Just this mm-hmm. uh, big pausa, as the Germans like to say. Because, I don't know, I just felt like I needed the moment to uh, have the world on hold. And it was amazing. Right. Um, I was supposed to have a show open March 11th in Milan. So I was going to like fly back for it. But then, of course, things went crazy. So they postponed the show. And it later opened, but even before it opened, like the dealer was able to sell a work, which was amazing because that's mm-hmm. the last thing I expected. Um, right. And then there was a show, a group show, like a in a kind of institutional setting in Frankfurt that opened in June. And that was like my first trip, basically, mm-hmm. because the borders were closed, like, you know, all over Europe. And so like the German-Polish border reopened. Um like early June and I went a few weeks later. Um, and then just like from a financial standpoint, it like this year has been better than last year, which is insane. Like it's the last mm-hmm. thing I expected. That was my biggest worry that it's like, Oh God, I won't have like anything coming up. I won't be able to sell anything. And it was actually the reverse. Right. And that's kind of unbelievable. Like I've probably, sold like twice as much as last year and I'm not like Mm -hmm. some big art star selling work all the time but the same thing don't jinx it don't (laughs) jinx it thanks boo um (laughs) but like two of the artists I was talking to um at the at the ceramics residency two Polish artists they said that like things have been better than ever for them as well Mm -hmm. and one of the artists is like oh I probably this year have sold three times as much as last year and how would you explain that well, so I asked him, like, what do you think it is? Um, like, I have my theories, and you probably have your theories too. But, like, mm-hmm. one of them said, for example, like, in Poland, you know, people were, like, the people who can afford to, um, they had no point in leaving money in savings because the there was, like, market volatility and all that. So mm-hmm. it's like, why leave money in a savings account that's generating, like, no interest? Mm-hmm. Um 
or maybe the stock market or whatever. Uh, I think maybe that's coupled with uh, people aren't overwhelmed with uh, like art fairs and biennials and articles that are like, here's the 10 things you need to buy right now and all that bullshit. And so people were just like, oh, I really like, you know, this painting of Amir's or this drawing or, you know, what have you. And not being like, oh, but I need to buy a figurative oil painting, you know? I mean, I definitely think there's still a lot of uh, sort of gasps, last gasps from before COVID and a lot of trends that still the inertia had to be sort of sustained either by the speculators, the museums, the art dealers, the other type of brokers. But in a sense, I feel like COVID has collapsed uh, a lot of the barriers and the walls and it's just made it really much easier i mean it existed even before covid but it just made it a little easier to connect uh, directly with uh collectors or even offer you know prices that are a little more competitive or just give out you know friendship like uh discounts and stuff like that uh and at sort of the collapse of the the whole structure of the 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 yearly uh, fair schedule and the openings just everything it kind of like scrambled up everything to the point where you could just easily uh without feeling like you're being watched by you know the whole industry you just like reach out to the person you might you know want to sell something because it's shown interest in the past in your work um it's just kind of made everything into a just smaller village and communications kind of easier and in that sense i feel like it i hate using that term but it kind of demarketized the the whole industry just a little bit more it just brought it down uh to a more accessible level, at least that's how uh, I see it. Yeah, that's exactly, I was thinking of the word democratize. Like, uh, it feels like the first time the internet has democratized something. Right. <laughs> or also in the art world where, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, the, these things were happening more casually. And like these artists I, I talked to at the residency, they're like, yeah, like the gallery sold some things and sold more than before. Mm-hmm. And also privately, like through Instagram and all that, I sold right. more. And yeah. and then one of them said that their gallery has had the best year ever this year. Yeah. And that's a Polish gallery. And that's like, it's not a huge market. It's mm-hmm. not like, you know, like a name gallery in Germany with like a huge collector base. So that's amazing that in this, you know, kind of like time of turmoil and all that, allegedly. Um, yeah you know, a gallery could have their best year. Um, I mean, I will say there is a tr- just tremendous benefits to the you know suspension of the rat race. And it truly feels like a rat race in New York. It's a, it's a construct everyone sort of uh, uh, subscribes to and uh, it just sort of forms the reality. And COVID just like truly like uh, just abrupt, abruptly sort of uh, uh, ended it. And there's just so much peace and quiet here now without the sort of rush to go to openings. Uh, I don't know. I've just been, I've been really enjoying it. Like it's, it's really nice if you were an artist who uh, was sort of, you know, yearning for some uninterrupted studio time. And also my heart goes out to you if you're an artist in the up, performing arts or anything that involves you know interactivity with audiences and crowds sort of um having a disappeared completely my heart goes out to you 
But uh, what a, the other thing I was going to say, I think that the, uh, some artists who have benefited more or most in this time are artists who ha- are, uh, you know, working in a two-dimensional, any objects, anything that photographs well or is just picture perfect and easily uh, uploadable to Instagram. But that's sort of stating the obvious, I guess. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so, yeah, so it's interesting, you know, there's uh, in recent news things such as uh, in Germany's latest bailout for the arts, the government is spending $18.7 million to keep commercial galleries <laughs> afloat. Uh, that's courtesy of uh, our pal Kate Brown at Artnet News. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then below that it says, the federal government is releasing funds specifically aimed at helping commercial galleries with their early 2021 programming. Um, and that's a uh, that's a September twenty eighth piece, but I feel like if you go all the way back to uh, just the beginning of the crisis, Germany also was releasing just insane uh, funds to the uh, to independents and freelancers, which was um, being abused by some people that we know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, time for the audit, Finanzamt. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, just in other words, I feel like Germany was giving so much money to people who otherwise would have never earned that amount of money in regular times. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like, uh, sorry to use this word, I feel like it's very <laughs> neoliberal. Uh, you know, so the story said that says that as a part of its New Start cultural culture program the country's culture ministry will provide support to commercial galleries across the country in the form of grants that range between 5000 and 35000 euro for its early 2021 programs okay so uh who's getting the 35000 like the kunigs of the of the german world like do these uh, galleries I, actually need that money or don't get me started and i mean there's one mentioning there of uh art dealers being indispensable talent scouts what is that i mean <laughs> are they it's like uh <laughs> i mean i guess the sh- the short answer to that is no <laughs> i don't know um let's see uh and apparently, as indispensable town scouts, they often ensure artists' livelihoods with exhibitions, catalogs, and fair presentations. Uh, I mean, that's that's such a generous, almost like benevolent way to describe what art dealers do in that sort of German context, I guess, to uh, explain yeah. why they should be getting all this money. Yeah, I mean... How much money is there even in... A- the commercial scene in, in Germany. Like, I mean, I remember my days in Berlin and always, uh, first of all, it was always waving the banner of uh, uh, poor but sexy. And it was sort of substantiated by actual like poor commercial uh, <laughs> sort of environment. Yeah. But like how much, I mean, you still sort of, you gravitate and you're you're in that sort of sphere. How much money is there in the uh, uh, commercial sphere in Germany compared to, for example, New York? Oh, it's like way less. I don't have any figures, uh, you know, in front of me. But I did see something recently where it was uh, kind of talking about sales, Germany versus, let's say, France or Belgium. And yeah, it's uh, like a per capita, much smaller figure, even though there are so many wealthy people in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know people are constantly saying like, oh, there's no collectors in Berlin, but that's fake. Like there are, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, because where even- do you think? 
Oh, sorry? Do they buy outside of Berlin or what's the problem? No, I think a bunch are buying in Berlin, but probably I'm sure that uh, like a Berlin gallery, like the average medium-sized Berlin gallery probably makes a lot of sales at art fairs, you know, kind of like any gallery. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. It's also like the problem with all this for me is that it's such an opaque system and Mm -hmm. there are so many shady things that people do in the art world uh, that would not fly in any other sector. Like Mm -hmm. even to the point of people like emotionally manipulating you if you want to have a contract or some sort of agreement or anything. In Uh, Germany? Oh, just in general in the art world. Uh Um, You know, or it's just like so many shenanigans. And then to be like, Okay, well, here's your um, five to thirty-five thousand euro, which mm-hmm. also it's like kind of in this vein of shadiness. It's like I've heard so many stories similar to these American PPE stories. You know, like all those stories mm-hmm. in the news, like oh, so and so gallery got a three million dollar loan and they don't right. need it. So the same thing is happening in Germany. It's like, um, you know, a lot of galleries put people on halftime, basically. Mm-hmm. The government paid the whatever percentage top-up mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, the business couldn't pay. And then they were still making employees work the, you know, they're like 40 hours a week. So it's like basically you're defrauding the taxpayer to, you know, have the system where it's like, oh, people can't come into the workplace. They can't be in the office. They're not working the whole time. Uh, okay, then if you're getting that money, they should only work half time mm-hmm. and not you basically stealing from the taxpayer. Like, that's insane. What I don't understand, and also having lived in uh, Germany for seven years, I just don't understand the Wests or especially New York or coastal America's just infatuation or this adoration of just anything German, especially with the endless you know, dispatches from Berlin that you see in the <laughs> Times every other week. Like like every what, week. Like, what is up with that? Are those just, like, ex-New York-based journalists who have decamped to Berlin and they're still on the payroll, so you have to, like, give them all these, uh, uh, all these placements in the Times? I don't understand it. Is there actual sort of demand for all that content coming from Berlin? I have no idea. Like... Obviously, there's, you know, this, like, New York or American diaspora in in uh, Berlin, but there is a disproportionate amount of German coverage because it's, like, okay, if you're going to, like, fetishize Western Europe and it's, like, apparent uh, cultural supremacy mm-hmm. and other supremacies, it's, like, there's other countries that you can talk about that also have a, you know, acceptable quality of life or a healthcare system or whatever. But it's yeah. like there is a German obsession in the New York Times. Yeah. And and I mean it, if you think if you think America's racist, <laughs> go spend yeah. a month in Germany. <laughs> uh yeah, exactly. Um I mean I'll just uh, yeah, I won't add to that. That's that's all yeah. I have to say. As a Pole <laughs> and a Jew. Mm-hmm. There you go. Exactly. Uh, I'm also, uh, I don't know where I read it, but uh, I read that the the tax rate for art sales uh, in Germany 
So I guess it's an article. It says that they're sort of fighting to lower it, get it to go down from 19 to 16, which is wild. In New York State, it's 4%, if I'm uh, not mistaken. The sales um, tax, right? This, the sales tax, yeah, for, for arts. I think there's a different sort of like subsection for it. I'm not sure. I'm not a tax person. Uh, but altogether, it just seems to me such like high... High numbers all around, but I mean, Europe's known for its high taxation in general, especially yeah. these uh, democratic uh, socialist countries. Um, I'm also reading that the association's calling for a, a quote-unquote new deal for art, thanks AOC, um, including <laughs> large-scale acquisitions and commissioning programs. To me, large-scale acquisitions... <laughs> I mean, okay. sound like the, the biggest money laundering vehicle yeah. ever, i.e. airport oh, uh, commissions, which you and I are just, uh, you know, salivating at the mouth just to get yeah. one day. Yeah, if anyone's listening that works for an airport's authority or an advisor that works with one, Amir and I, this is our dream project. Uh-huh. We, need to, we need to skim that 1% for public art out of yeah. everyone's pocket. Um, I'm even I'm even willing to get paid and just like Shake Shack, like uh, uh, LaGuardia Shake Shack uh, <laughs> credit. Oh, thank God they added some real brands there before it was like Auntie Annie's pretzels and made up airport I, brands. I miss the airport so much. I'm so happy we got to do some air travel before this all started. Remember when we went to Starbucks and in Charles de Gaulle? <laughs> Yeah, that was. It's, it just seems like ages ago at this point. Ugh, I know, um, but yeah, it's like these these like mass public works will be like yet another Katarina Grossa work. Yeah, whose work I love. Yeah, but at but... the same time, it's always the same people, and that's the problem. It's like, and just like all these, all these programs. It's like, yes, I don't want anyone to be like down on their luck, but a lot of these programs, it's like. I think of all the artist friends I have everywhere, but also like, you know, the Berlin arts friends. And it's like, they're slipping through the cracks of all these things. Mm-hmm. Like some of them didn't even get this 5,000 euro, um, you know, payout in March that everyone was right. getting. Cause it was like convoluted. There are people that don't have the clearest residency or what have you. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, or they couldn't wait in the digital queue. Mm-hmm. It's like, why is there a digital queue? Like, there's no right. IT solution to submitting a form. Instead, you're basically making making people wait in like a Six Flags line online mm-hmm. to apply for five thousand euro. And there I are mean, people I that f- couldn't make it in time. Yeah, I feel like Germany or Berlin specifically is still sort of riding on the coattails of. This like DIY cloud, the historical DIY cloud and everything's like not commercial. And between those cracks slip all the big galleries, big artists who are able to just keep pushing for those big names. And um, as you said, a lot of a lot of the like really worthy other artists just they don't make the cut. Yeah. So uh, listeners, we're not uh, hating. It's just. It, there isn't like an equitable spread of the goods and riches out there. That's yeah, absolutely kind not. of the core issue. Um, I, I mean, for all, for all the negative coverage that not negative, but critical coverage of uh, you know the mega galleries here, Gagosian or Pace, like 
nobody talks uh, poorly or critically of the big galleries in, in Germany. They're still considered sort of a, a smaller player, even though in the uh, you know environment or the, the, the commercial sphere of Berlin, they play a major role. And a lot of artists just will never have a, uh, any chance of even cl- coming close to those spheres. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's constantly harder and harder for young galleries to succeed. In Berlin, it's like I moved there in 2010 and it was still relatively affordable then. And, you know, I think from maybe a New Yorker's point of view, it's still cheap, but it's like it's not. And once you move there and you're making money or working a job, it's like you're not getting paid a New York salary. Mm -hmm. You're getting paid significantly less. And so all the costs have gone up. And, you know, it's like really amazing galleries like Gilmeyer Rech, friends of ours. It's like, you know, their gallery went out of business. Mm-hmm. They had great artists, you know, they were in touch with collectors, they did fairs, and it's like, it's hard to make a go of it. And I think the kind of top tier galleries need to play more of a supportive role in Berlin, because mm-hmm. I feel like in maybe other centers, they are more supportive, um, but not in Berlin, I guess, because I don't know, all these small galleries have been going under. Um, or having to move to other cities or what have you. So Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, another d- debate we could have is uh, whether uh, government funds keeping certain galleries afloat that, to begin with, sh- you know, shouldn't, like, their cultural significance or contributions <laughs> <laughs> debatable. Like, uh, I won't make no. that argument, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's like... You know, when Berkine didn't have to remit VAT mm-hmm. for, like, their beverage purchases or whatever because they were considered a cultural institution. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sorry, they should be collecting their 19% on a Club Mate or a vodka soda and sending it to the tax office because they make so much money. Uh, apparently 1 billion euro a year in revenue, Mm -hmm. uh, as you sent me today. Uh, The reason, like, sorry to create this high-low culture divide, but the reason, like, an opera company or a ballet doesn't have to remit VAT, for those of you who don't know VAT is sales tax, um, is because they're constantly, like, on the verge of collapse. Mm -hmm. Like, those are difficult cultural enterprises to keep afloat but I, a nightclub <laughs> yeah with like thousands of people paying 20 euro to come in and buy drinks and what else um yeah that's a bit absurd you know i feel like for the uh, for all the uh, corporate criticism uh, aimed at uh, amazon and other big companies here that pay zero uh, zero in uh, federal taxes i feel like we just need a uh, German Bernie Sanders or AOC to level that same sort of critique at Bergheim for their, <laughs> you know, myriad tax evasions and other sort of uh, plots and schemes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the Bergheim VAT thing was completely legal and above board because they went to court to make that clear. Mm-hmm. And it's like, kind of fucked up in my opinion i mean i will say though i am not hating on Bergine. i've had some of the best nights of my life there <laughs> back 
Wait, wait, I'm, I'm pulling a uh, superiority statement now. Back in 2008, when Bergheim was still cool and Berlin was still cool. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say, when I moved to Berlin in 2008, my first apartment, I just opened the real estate section. The I just opened the newspaper and you could literally the world was your oyster you could just pick whatever you wanted and the first apartment i saw uh was a huge three bedroom uh and my room rented for like i think 230 euros (laughs) uh and those were the days it was just really nice but well those are no more as (laughs) so i hear as i saw uh a friend of a friend on twitter uh, my landlord just kicked me out of my flat for no reason. The one I spent a year and a half looking for. It's oh like, God. there you go. That's why I moved to the shtetl over here. Yep. To avoid that. Um, yeah. I don't know. I had a good time in Berlin. Apartments were amazing. I, uh, I feel like towards the, uh, like into my sixth year, it just started grinding on me too much. And my, uh, sort of depressing diet and the constant yeah. overcast sort of weather it's just terrible yeah depressing. i left i left at year seven mm-hmm. um and everything's just so damp constantly like indoor oh outdoor God. it's just damp and those radiators in the apartment where you just you can't turn the dial up further than three they like put a lock on three <laughs> so you only get a, a sampling of heat or better yet, they have like a timetable when the heat comes on. It's like, oh my god! Oh, sorry, it's still too early, even though it's uh, you know ten Celsius. We're not going to oh turn god. it on. Um, or that one time, my aunts who live in Berlin had to call the. Uh, it was just, I think it's uh, specific, like especially cold, like early winter, and they called the landlord company, the management company, and the lady just like uh, just refused to turn on the heating. Uh, before like the the formal schedule uh, goes into uh, effect, <laughs> okay, oh, but, I'll just freeze here. But you know what? In the in the uh, contract, they often have an airing out the apartment schedule, a two page uh, section <laughs> on avoiding shimmel, pilts, oh uh, mold. Don't get me started on shimmel in Germany. <laughs> Oh, just just a little uh, disclaimer, Pshamik. If you ever want to say something a uh, derog- derogatory or uh, anything sort of libel in the uh, German context, <laughs> you can have me say it because I'm not beholden to the same laws that could send you to prison in oh, the yeah. EU for okay. defamation of anything German. Oh yeah, um, I can't insult anyone, uh, even if it's my opinion. I also can't insult a politician. Uh, I can't like give someone the finger and tell them they're a loser. (laughs) (laughs) So much for your freedom. Oh my God. Uh, but wait, I think we weren't, we weren't all that clear. Why were we even talking about Bergheim in the context of, uh, government funds? Uh well, they also what, were what is that what is that funds. show we're thinking about? <laughs> okay, so it's called Studio Berlin. Uh, I'm sure people have read about it online. There was a New York Times story. Um, <laughs> just one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so September eighth, 
2020, uh, New York Times says, while Berkheim is closed, there's art on the dance floor. The famous Berlin Techno Club has been repurposed as an exhibition space during the pandemic. It's a mixing of club culture and visual art reminiscent of the golden days of the 1990s. Um, so, Did you go? No, I have not gone yet. Um, it's open until December or through December. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a few friends in the show. I would love to see their work and be supportive. But Is I there also, a cover charge to get in? It's, uh, I believe, 20 euro to go, which is oh like God. the price of going to Berkine, mm-hmm. Um, which I think is bullshit because allegedly um, the city of Berlin. Oh, no, not allegedly because the New York Times says it right here. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, gray lady herself says it. Uh, the city of Berlin is contributing 250,000 euros, around 295,000 US dollars. And the Boros Foundation is paying into. So uh, we didn't make that fully clear. So there's the Boros Bunker and there's the Boros Foundation. Um, maybe some of you have heard that. It's a an old Nazi-era bunker, which was later a communist-era... <laughs> yeah, shocker. A communist-era fruit storage facility, apparently, for, like, mm-hmm. bananas. Um, and now is a private collection um, by the Boros family. And mm-hmm. uh, Christian Boros uh, has made his fortune in communications, graphic design, etc. And uh, did he invent a uh, boring typeface that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a skin go- government uh, letterhead, <laughs> a skinny sans serif uh, font <laughs> that German graphic <laughs> designers love. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, but they definitely do do a lot of government work. Um, and I just, uh, you know, Berkine is a very successful business. I understand that they are on hard times, but aren't we all? Mm-hmm. And I understand it's a tourism generator and all this and that. But 250,000 euros for a show that's up for a few months. Uh, mostly artists that are in the collection already like at the Boros bunker. Um, so it, was, it wasn't sort of a open application, open call no. uh, type of opportunity? No, it was uh, curated by uh, Yulia Kota uh, mm-hmm. and also Karen Boros. And so the great thing, at least uh, I think with Yulia, is that she brought some younger artists in, like for example, Pal of the Pod, Lin, uh, Lindsay Lawson. Uh, mm-hmm. She's in the show. Uh, Zuzana Chabatul, she actually used to work at Berkine. Um, they're really great artists. And then there are more successful artists so, as well. So how does it work? Are the uh, the works that come from the bigger galleries, they're just you know handled by the galleries, but then the smaller artists, uh, are they handled by the curator? Or like if a, if a piece sold, for example, what's the cut? Oh, I don't know if it's like a sales thing or not. Okay. But I'm sure like if, you know, if an artist has a work there and someone wants to buy it, I'm sure they could sell it. I doubt that like, uh, you know, Boros is involved in that or anything, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's also, you know, like artists through their gallery have kind of put work in the show. So maybe then the gallery's trying to sell those works or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
Yeah. So it's, it's essentially it's you're saying essentially it's a it's a not for profit endeavor. This yes, whole exhibition. It's, it's a not for profit endeavor endeavor. And yes, I understand these things are costly. And yes, Boros is putting money into it, uh, as it says in the article. But I don't really think the city should be paying two hundred fifty thousand euro. Uh, I think that could be used in different ways because there isn't actually an endless, you know, pit of money for anything, especially cultural mm-hmm. programming. So maybe something that's like more equi- more equitable or more democratic. Um, maybe like a series of exhibitions at the different kind of artist-run spaces in Berlin would have been really cool in this time. Uh, again, it's like all these people we know who are amazing artists who never have exhibition opportunities. It'd be great if they had an opportunity to show something, you know, in this mm-hmm. like Corona time and maybe even sell something because what, again, there are yeah. some of them that don't kind of qualify as an artist in the eyes of the city because, you know, they've worked like, you know, a poorly paid nine to five job and all their taxes have related to that. And there's like actually no sign of them being an artist. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, I just uh, honestly don't understand why everything has to sort of start and end with a Bergheim story. It just seems so provincial that like all roads lead to that venue eventually. You're telling me that there's just no other platform for either emerging artists or sort of cutting slack or helping out artists who have been, um, uh, you know, hurt badly by Corona or just trying to like revive something in the cultural uh, atmosphere of of Berlin. I'm like, when I, when it, Obviously, like when I, um, uh, it was just obvious to me, you know, a big venue to hold an event like that would be Bergheim, but like, it just feels like, oh my God, again, Bergheim? Like, it's yeah. the only thing you hear about in the in the context of Berlin. Yeah. And that's why, like, I'm, I'm rarely a contrarian or like a, oh, I don't do something because everyone likes it, but it's like the whole buzz and hype around it is just so obnoxious. Like, <laughs> And it actually makes me not want to engage. Like, I've been six times and yeah. met Robin there. Yes, that's a name drop. <laughs> and that was fab because she was super sweet and love Robin. Um, but, yeah, it's just like, I've you know, I moved there 10 years ago. And it's like all people talked about. And it's still all people talk about. And imagine yeah. in New York, people were just like constantly talking about like, the tunnel or something or like mm-hmm. some club that's no longer around. I mean, when I moved there in 2008 and started going to Bergheim, it didn't really feel transgressive back then. It was just a really, just a really good club and a nice uh, place to sort yeah. of spend uh, five to 14 hours. <laughs> or 34 hours. 34 um, hours, yeah. But it just feels like the transgression has been such like aggressively institutionalized now where it's just like completely has, yeah. you know, milked it out of any actual true like transgression essentially but also like i know it's all relative but sorry it's not actually transgressive it's like if you're a gay male like us and you go to yeah. any gay bar in europe even in the most conservative conservative corners of europe it's like all that is happening at your neighborhood gay bar it's yeah. like i don't get what the trans uh, transgression there is it's a uh, I mean, there's no transgression, and if anything, the the level of body fetishism that sort of takes place, the the white male body cis. Yeah, but it's true. It's like male body takes place there. It's it's the temple of that. It's the mecca yeah. of body fetishism. 
And also it's like, who's getting rejected at the door usually? It's like not like hot white queens. Yeah. It's uh, like people that look undesirable or black or brown or, and obviously, you know, there is a mix of people there, but it's like what I've heard from friends is like, that's who's getting rejected. Yeah. It's like there is racism allegedly happening there, um, which any door policy does. It's like, sorry, get rid of that bullshit. It's like, yeah, of course. It's like, you want to be like open and democratic, let everyone in. Because guess what? The loser investment banker from New York will go there and either they'll leave or maybe they'll have an amazing time. Maybe mm-hmm. they'll change. We well, all deserve a chance. True. It just sounds like that sort of gatekeeping mentality is alive and kicking in this uh, in this art exhibition. Yeah, exactly. And um, again, pal of the pod, uh, Dr. Ika Vitrock, the gender scientist. <laughs> um, Breaking news, he just discovered another gender. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was telling me that uh, Bearkind did like a, a dance program or like a collaboration where there was dance happening at Bearkind. And it was like one of the most conser- conservative things. It was like a state opera, uh, sorry, state ballet company, mm-hmm. uh, like Staatsballet or whatever. And like, okay, you have this building that's kind of filled with youthful energy, transgression, allegedly, uh, you know the new and now and it's it's like ooh we put ballet in this brutalist space shocker mm-hmm. like like such a basic 80s 90s juxtaposition it's like i'm watching well, rent <laughs> well i mean that's that's just, at this point it's the berlin sort of trope yeah the rundown industrial space uh and then just the you know the if you want to talk about fascism and fascistic aesthetics that's that's where you go to like i'll never forget this one <laughs> this one night i think it was uh 2011 or something we were at a party in Burgine and like rumor had it that they would have this arrangement with the local police authorities to on occasion let them raid the club uh aiming straight at the um at all the bathroom areas where the drug dealing, like the low-key drug dealing... Uh, allegedly happened. <laughs> allegedly happened. And so the police would just raid the club as uh, discreetly as possible, yank some people <laughs> bathroom stalls, uh, and just, you know, remove them from the premises. And in, in exchange for that, the club could, you know, keep its... Uh, uh, it's right to open, whatever. Anyways, I remember being at a uh, downstairs at, uh, in Burgine, and all of a sudden this, like... Just a line of about, I don't know, like uh, 20 police people, like in full, like body armor and like canine, police canine, just like walked through the club and the music doesn't even stop. And for everyone, it was just sort of an enhancement of the whatever, like, uh, you know, transcendental moment that they were experiencing. But that's that's basically the experience that you get there. And I think people kind of. Uh, they sign up for that type of experience, this sort of uh, fucked up, elevated, like fascistic sort of excitement. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's getting a little old. I don't know. Like, Well, guess what? It's over and it's time to move on. So, okay. <laughs> I, th- I think the other thing, uh, the elephant we need to get out of the room is the uh, latest news the last few days. The delay of Philip Guston retrospective divides the art world. 
according to the New York Times. Yeah, what a headline. It kind of makes you want to like just scream back at it. Uh, no, does it divide <laughs> <Yes>. us? <laughs> yeah. And uh, who's wait, divided wait. on it? What's how is this dividing? Like who's for it? And I mean, I don't know. is it an editor that writes the headline or some special position? It's not the writer of the article usually, but it's like, did that person write? Uh, did they read? Sorry. Uh, the article because if you read the article no one's actually divided it's just uh like trustees and directors of museums are scared of getting canceled and wait so you got to give us some background about the uh, postponement of the uh okay so four museums uh were to tour a show together of philip gustin's works it was a the first retrospective in more than 15 years, and it was supposed to open in June at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. A, a Jewish-Canadian artist, you should add. Wait, he's Canadian? Philip, yeah, Philip Goldstein, born in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't know yeah. he's Canadian. Crazy. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. Ugh, okay. Well, that's like, exciting. Wh- why are we dying on that hill? He's Canadian. <laughs> So then it was to move to the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and then to the Tate Modern in London and finally the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Uh, no Canadian date, I see. Um, also, so, why did it take 15 years to plan? No, no, it's just the, the first in more than 15 years. I think. Oh, sorry, just, but it's, yeah. I read somewhere that it, took, it was years in the making. Oh, in the, in the maybe planning. it was just like the, you know, there's works just all retreat. over. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's probably that. And then also it's like the family has a foundation or what have you and it's probably right. just like it takes a lot of time but yeah okay so there's okay everyone has heard this there's like clan member imagery like hooded clansmen etc if you read one article about philip gustin you find out he's jewish and this was about his experience with racism um as a as a canadian jew <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, everywhere. There's anti-Semitism I mean, int- everywhere. Yeah. And racism I mean, I, everywhere. Interestingly enough, so he's he's uh, known for having a sort of renounced abstract expressionism. We're going to get into that in a second uh, too. But uh, so in his uh, new incarnation as a new expressionist artist, uh, there was kind of... Uh, started out by the, re- the experience he had in the Vietnam War uh he started making these sort of very personal uh, experience paintings i am not a big fan of philip gusson neither the abex uh phase nor the new expressionist uh phase they're cute cartoons but i think i told you the other day like i find like Rob- robert crumb's work a little more transgressive and like fun whimsical totally. like i don't I don't know how Philip Gustin got to that sort of canon level of art history. A uh, friend of the pod, Stephen, is going to uh, excoriate me for thinking or <laughs> saying that, but I just, I'm not into Philip Gustin, sorry. That's where the art world is truly divided on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not into a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Here, it says that Gustin, who died in 1980 at 66, was a leading abstract expressionist until he made an artistic about-face during the Vietnam War, influenced by civil unrest and social dissent, calling American abstract art a lie, a sham. He pivoted. (laughs) He pivoted to making paintings uh, in a dark figurative style, including satirical drawings of Richard Nixon, 
I'm assuming he realized that abstract expressionism was a lie and a sham after the CIA involvement <laughs> in the elevation of its status sort of came to uh, came to the public knowledge. Uh, yeah. Yeah. CIA. So. <laughs> yeah, it's like Google CIA ABEX if none of you know, because apparently a lot of people don't know. I mean, I didn't know. To be honest, like I, I, I'm not knowledgeable in this matter at all. I clearly remember sitting in Tuscany in the, uh, in the residency house, and you saying something about it. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And, I and you, pr- you probably thought and- I'm a uh, paranoid. <laughs> No, I thought you just like wanted to, you know, ruin abstract expressionism for me, just to cancel it for me. And I looked it up, and it was true. So the CIA was responsible for the meteoric global rise of abstract expressionism. What is gay figuration's excuse? <laughs> it could also be a CIA ploy, and that's a Who Netflix knows? pilot I would like to write. So <laughs> let's get cracking on that one. Who would you cast in the main role? Uh, Carrie Brownstein. Um, oh, from Portlandia and Sleater Kinney. Yeah, I love her. Um, I think she'd be great as like, you know, like a New York, you know, 40s white feminist artist. And uh, True. yeah, I think it'd be so good. Like she'd yeah. be, I think it'd be a good dark comedy with her. We, I, I have a title for it. So the, the CIA supportive cultural initiatives, the term for that uh, for them was called Long Leash. <laughs> so that's a maybe a name for the Netflix show. Long, Long Leash. Leash. That's good. Mm-hmm. I like that. Thanks. Okay, so and no one can I, steal it now. <laughs> yeah. And also I, I read that uh Rockefeller, so Nelson Rockefeller was a president of MoMA in the forties and the fifties, and he allegedly had close ties with the uh, figures in the US intelligence uh force, which kind of explains the kind of uh yeah. The closed system of uh Sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, obviously this whole uh, kind of people having no balls. Sorry to use that term, uh, and just being like, "Oh, we better cancel the show because we haven't addressed this content," even though they obviously have because they've already released a catalog that addresses this, um, mm-hmm. including essays by a diverse group of artists that address it, and so like. Yeah, clearly they're, you know, these trustees and directors are just scared of backlash or blowback or whatever. Uh, So that's absurd. But at the same time, I feel like the reaction is really obnoxious too. It's like, you know, this very like boomer reaction of like, if if art isn't here for us, where, what what will we do? Like that kind of thing. And, you know, like I'm sure there's Jerry Salt's like 10 pages of tweets about it already. Yeah. (laughs) If he hadn't blocked, uh, has he blocked us? <laughs> He's blocked both of us. It's like we haven't even started a podcast yet, and we're already blocked. Well, yeah. guess what? There's gonna be more salt on salts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an open letter now um, that's been penned. Mm-hmm. The Philip Gustin show should be reinstated, and on first glance, one of the best parts of the open letter is that. Um, you know, in the democracy of the art world, the kind of biggest, most famous, highest selling artist names are uh, on the open letter. And then you have to click a link to go to a Google Doc. Where the lesser artists go. <laughs> yeah, where, the, where the lesser artists are. Um, 
For example, yesterday we were checking and right as we're looking, Shirin the shot is filling in the form we could see live. Um, oh, wow. They completely reformatted the form. It's so fancy looking now. Oh, yeah. yeah. I see they added like that gray background to the text. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. I'm going to click. Lor- Laurie the- Anderson. Is she alive? Yes, oh, I saw oh, her no, I uh, do a performance um, in Berlin a few years ago. And it was wonderful. And I think she should actually do like um, Headspace or Calm, like those, you know, apps that help you meditate and go to sleep because mm-hmm. I fell asleep during her performance, but I mean that in the best way. Not that it was boring, mm-hmm. but she has a very soothing voice. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's bold face names on this list. You know, the um, Avery singers of the art world are on the front page, but then, you know, Wait, everyone I'm else, scro- all the I'm minions. Oh, the minions. Nobody asked me to, uh, no one asked me. Should um, thoughts on art sign it? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually. I'm scrolling through the spreadsheet to see what uh, people uh, wrote in uh, for comments. I'm sure there's something. Uh, oh, there's good ones here. Um, Mr. Christy Taylor says, "Come on, Tate. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater." <laughs> As heard on the Rachel Maddow show. <laughs> Wait, what else is good here? Um... Also, the sense of urgency. This exhibition needs to happen now, exclamation point. Very important. Uh, Daniel Blau in lowercase letters. Um, I guess he's bell hooks. Um, next Gustin show will be canceled because he painted cigarettes. The German spelling, question mark. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Many, many, but not Oh, my God. A disgrace. What other uh, big uh, names do you see on that, sp- on that spreadsheet? Oh, God. It's like, it's too dense now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, wonder, just... if Jer- I wonder if Jerry's name's on it. Oh, let's see. I'm going to do a command F. Jerry? No, he has not signed it. I guess he's, oh my God. I guess he's for censorship. Is uh, Roberta on the list? Nope. So what's this quote? The, is that from the uh, catalog? The danger is not looking at Philip Gustin's work, but in looking away. No idea. What if you just What if you just straight up don't like the work, and so it doesn't pose any actual either threat or is of any significance to moving the dial in the political moment we're in <sighs> right now? I just I am sh- I'm somebody wrote I am shocked, nauseated, and outraged that Gustin's painting are seen as a potential danger by quote unquote higher cultural institutions that should know better. There's a lot of assumptions here. First of all, <laughs> the cultural institutions know or that they should know better, or that the painting is as, you know, moving as a political vehicle or a tool as uh, you'd like to think uh they are. Yeah, I mean Sorry, museums are not that relevant to most people's lives. <laughs> no, and especially the museums who really lean into it the hardest are the ones that fall the most flat. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to name the museums that come to my mind, but yeah, we don't want to avoid exhibition opportunities. But <laughs> yeah, don't but cancel us. <laughs> don't cancel. <laughs> That's what my dad said that in a roundabout way. Not cancel because you know he's from a communist country, so it's like mm-hmm. it's more like don't get blacklisted kind of thing. Oh um, yes, yeah, same. <laughs> Um, no, but like, all you have to do is go to the museum websites and just see how much tickets cost. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, there's a slight window if you're like working class or poor to go. 
yeah. if you go if you go to the free day between like six and eight. <laughs> but but otherwise, mean, it's like twenty five dollars for yeah. you and your partner potentially, and then your kids may be getting free. But I'm like, my parents wouldn't have taken me to a museum if they had to pay fifty dollars. No, like, I mean real. honestly, the, just the lo- yeah, the level of pretense and the uh, the sort of self a uh, understanding is such. Uh, uh, significance I mean museums are yes they're very important but you also have to admit the fact that they're important to a very sort of small section of people yeah and also the way they run is you know wealthy people on their boards who like it or not are dictating a lot of what is happening even mm-hmm. if that's not happening in the open and you know and even this you know oh museums are repositories for things that are significant or may become even more significant. It's like museums also sell work. Like they decide I mean, that you, things aren't uh, worth their time and space anymore. And then this thing that has been like, you know, placed there to apparently be there for eternity. Like mm, over this painting, <laughs> going to sell it now. I mean, and it's, and and museums being you know vehicle for for a uh, radical and aggressive a uh, elevation of uh, the the value of an artist's work, especially uh, you know shows that really make you scratch your head in terms of like how did they pick this like really young artist who's had barely One any show. gallery showings <laughs> to yeah. all of a sudden be you know anointed to get a solo institutional show at this or that big museum. Uh, it just makes you want to know how the sausage gets yeah. made or like who's pulling strings. Yeah. Um, well, and then you look and you're like, oh, they also have a lot of commercial traction. Shocker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Like none of this happens in a vacuum and just, I don't know. I wouldn't have a problem with it if they were just open about it. <laughs> like, yeah. And I will also I will also say that I don't know what uh, the British public's excuse is, but like and I, I can understand that Americans currently in this moment need everything uh, spelled out to them uh, at best figuratively. Everything is to be really symbolically sort of interpreted and understood to them in order to understand the moment or the 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 painting or its message. But like, there's clearly no room at this moment for you know more. Uh, evocatively abstract work that you know the artist could have also had the same intentions or motives uh, as a uh, philip gustin's but like no one's gonna mount a show of you know war era critical abstract uh, um you know bodies of work it's 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 gustin's sort of uh just i guess what i'm trying to say is the reason why i'm not a big fan of his because especially in the context of this moment is because everything's just so it's spelled out so simply yeah, was, in the painting. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say it's so like hitting the nail on the head because it's like, oh, this is relevant to our time because it addresses racism. It's like, yeah, racism is an issue in our society, but this yeah. actually doesn't address racism. It's like the yeah. mere like image of a clan thing isn't like, yeah. wow, I'm really going to stop and think now. And, uh, yeah. you know, some like white supremacist is going to come to the MoMA be like, wow, everything changes. I'm really... Uh, I'm leaving the Proud Boys now. (laughs) Yeah. It's insane. Stand by, stand down. (laughs) God. That mess. Uh, Well, are you voting, Amir? (laughs) I am definitely voting. This is going to be my first federal election I get to vote in as an American citizen, and I'm extremely excited for that. 
Gonna Happy vote you. out the turd on November third. <laughs> uh, I think that's a Alyssa Milano quote. <laughs> right before she called the police. Um, <laughs> Bye. Yeah, on the neighborhood <sighs> thugs. That mess. She's a mess. Okay. Well, I think that's it for today. Yeah. This this we file a, size uh, might get too big. Yeah. Do we have a hotline uh, email people could maybe uh, reach out to us uh, through? Yes. If you have any hot tips, uh, breaking news, questions, or even like, let's say you have a, an art world crush you want to shout out, mm-hmm. um, please email us at thoughtsonart. That's T-H-O-T-S-O-N-A-R-T at gmail.com. And... Um, yeah, we hope you'll share this with your friends. Um, subscribe, like, comment, or whatever you have to do. This is yeah. Not- we're on uh, we're on Instagram. We're on hopefully on Apple Music. Uh, I mean the podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna submit that after we record this and on Spotify, Stitcher, which I don't even know what Stitcher is. Um, <laughs> hopefully, one day we can get to that podcast network that Lena Dunham's on with uh, Alyssa Bennett. I'd Big fan. I love Lena. I, I do too. And you know what? And I love Alyssa Bennett. And I actually hope she comes on one day with uh, maybe with David Fearman. Yeah, I can ask him. Yeah, that'd be fab. All, All right. So uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. And uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>